My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, protective, unflappable, loyal, complicated, powerful, honest, lyrical. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, extraordinary. When you think of the German word to describe her, what would that word be? Tapfer. That's the word for courage. Strong. It implies more than courage. And the older I get, the more I acknowledge my mother's courage. This is Our Mothers Ourselves, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. The author Sonia Levitin was born in 1934 in Berlin. There couldn't have been a worse time or place to be Jewish. Four years later, in 1938, Sonia's mother carried out a bold plan for saving her immediate family from the nightmare that was unfolding around them. Today marks Holocaust Remembrance Day. To commemorate the day, I spoke with Sonia Levitin about her memories of her courageous mother, Helene goldstein Wolf. Helene died in 1993 at the age of 96. Sonia Levitin, thank you so much for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about your, your mother. I'm glad to be here, Katie. Let me ask you this question right off the bat. If you were to describe your mother using one word, what would that word be? Courageous. Mm. You said that without hesitation. Yes, because she was not impetuous. She didn't hesitate to do the right thing, mm-hmm. to, uh, to reflect, to look at the signs, and then to take action. She wasn't a person who would sit for a long, long time weighing consequences. And I think that's important. When you know the right thing to do, you act. And that's your mother's voice. Absolutely. It's very strange. My mother, uh, of course, spoke German, and so did I, because she never wanted me to forget the language. And many times I've been so glad that I kept the language, but... Sometimes during the day, I'll hear her voice telling me something that's really idiomatic, that you can't quite translate into English. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting because she passed away in 1993. When you think of the German word to describe her, what would that word be? Oh, that I have to think about. My German's not that sharp. Let me think of a word. Tapfa, that's the word for courage. Tapfa, strength mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. Strong. It implies more than courage. Strong, mm-hmm. resolute. Mm-hmm. And she had many sayings. Uh, one must be. One should be. For instance, she would say, "One has to have uh, grace, even in eating. You don't eat like an animal. You don't slurp. You sit up." <laughs> You eat nicely. So she died in 1993. How old was she when she died? Oh, she was 96 and very proud of it. She was happy with her old age. I think quite contented. She lived by herself until she was 95. And at that point, her dementia got uh, worse And I had to get her into a group home. I really had to trick her 
because she was so independent. Uh, we had every Wednesday together, that was our day. And we would go shopping, buy what she needed, and then we would go out to lunch. And then we would talk, and I'd go back to her house and try to help without being obvious. I'd pick up all the laundry and stuff it into a bag really quick, bring it back the next week. But it got so that she really could not manage. And I found a really good group home with only six people in it and two in staff there all the time. And uh, when I introduced my mother to the woman, she came to the house. Her name was Bernadette, which was a good sign, which I'll tell you later. <laughs> and... Uh, Bernadette met her briefly, and then we went outside, she and I, and Bernadette said, it's all right, she's demented like all the others. Mm. My heart just sank because I had never said that word even to myself. But I realized then that my whole behavior toward her was as though she was a child, and I had to take good care of her. Now, what I think is important about, first of all, the fact that your mother died relatively recently, 27 years ago, which is in turn not that far from the Holocaust in terms of years, and the importance of telling her story really has to do with this idea of not ever forgetting, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so let's dive into her story. I'm holding a copy of your beautiful book, Journey to America, which you've said is quite autobiographical. I'm a little worried that I'm going to get confused and think that what happened in the book is exactly what happened in real life. So you might have to um, to correct me. <laughs> okay. So I wanted to ask you about your mom's uh, childhood and where in Berlin she grew up. So t tell me about your mom's early life. All right. Well, my mother was born in Cottbus, which has gone back and forth between Poland and Germany, but I believe it was on the border. Uh, her father was a typical German father. I do not remember him. I only have a picture of my grandfather, Samuel. Uh, he did go to synagogue every Saturday, which I learned in one letter that I have. He sent to my sister Eva when even before I was born, and he said, walk on over to my house on a Saturday, and we will walk to the synagogue together. So she must have been, she's seven years older than I, so she must have been maybe six years old when that letter was written. What part of Berlin? Oh, they. Uh, we lived in Charlottenburg. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you know it. It's I do. Yeah, beautiful. Tree line streets. Mm -hmm. And we were only a couple of blocks from my grandmother's house, my mother's mother. She had a nanny for the children, Fräulein Kete, your name. And uh, she had someone, to, of course, uh, to clean the house on Stubenmitchen. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the afternoons, she and her sister and her mother would meet, and they would go down Kurfürstendamm. Maybe they took the taxi, I don't know. Uh, how did she meet your dad? 
apparently he came into the store. My mother was there, my grandfather's store, and she was his bookkeeper. She was very sharp with figures and very correct, I mean, to the penny. In her old age, when a bill came, it had to be paid immediately, and it was. So she met him, and evidently they were very attractive. My father was an extremely good-looking and vibrant man, and they began to correspond. And I have some of those love letters, which is a treasure. And uh, they were married, I think, in probably 1923. She was not very young. Uh, you know, girls were marrying younger, but she was in her mid-twenties when they got married. My grandfather was very much against it. Why? Why? Because my father was not from a well-to-do family. They lived mm. in Neukölln. It was a rural community, and he was very derisive. They lived, he said, on the top floor of a stable. So, uh, and his father was a tailor. My father was a tailor. And not refined. They were not what you would call refined. I have to tell you, I love it that your mom fell in love with this boy from Neukölln. I mean, that's a tough place. And I like it that your mom, it sounds like she defied her father married this man she fell in love with, regardless of his station in life. I'm imagining they lived this comfortable uh, life, kind of middle class Well, life. my father owned a car, and he, had, he was manufacturing his own designs at that point. He had grand ambitions, ah. and he really was an artistic person. He continued his business in America, and he sold to stores like Macy's and the Broadway and uh, big department mm -hmm. stores. And it was always 100% wool. The buttons will never fall off, and they didn't. <laughs> and uh, he knew how to deal with the buyers. In Yiddish, you would say he could schmooze them. Let me ask you this, actually, before we go any further. How much did your mother talk about this period leading up to the rise of the Nazis in Berlin? Because you were tiny. Well, I was born in 1934, and by then the Nazis were already in control, and we were frightened, and we were timid. And of course, when we came to America, we were desperately poor. However, she always told me how good the life had been, and how the Jews were assimilated, and how well they did. And I don't know whether she planned this, but it gave me a sense of dignity. We were not the vermin that the Nazis made us out to be. Mm -hmm. I'd like to paint a picture for, for listeners about what was going on in Germany at the time, and in Berlin, and th that time leading up to when your father, first your father left, and then your mom took you and your two sisters to Switzerland. Well, Hitler was first a street thug, troublemaker and arrested. Ultimately, he was elected. And I always emphasize this. He was elected to power. 
people said he was a fool, he was a madman, he was crazy, they would run him out of town. Well, they didn't. Hitler was saying things publicly that proposed what he would do. He was going to cleanse Germany of Jews, of that horrible race, that stain. You can look in all the speeches, the things he said, how he humiliated, isolated people, first just with words. Afterwards came the deeds. He encouraged people to march along the streets of Berlin. And one of the group that marched that my mother told me about, and I remember indelibly the words to the song they sang, they were young boys in the Hitler youth wearing brown shirts. So they were dubbed brown shirts and they would link arms and go swinging along the sidewalk singing, when the blood of Jews spurts from our knives, things will be twice as good as before. This was in public. Nobody came, no police, no one spoke against it, no citizens. The Nazis said that non-Jews were no longer allowed to associate in any way with the Jews. They could not work together. Certainly, they could not work in a Jewish household. So our beloved Fräulein Kate was supposed to leave. She did not leave. She stayed until we, until we moved on. Uh, the Nuremberg laws are infamous. The punishments and the ways of separating people. And then, of course, in any coup, I would call it, in any totalitarian state, the police have free reign. Also, the fire departments, when they burn down our synagogue on Fasanenstrasse, the fire department didn't come. So I just want to make it clear, this is, in the, this is before November 1938. Uh, yes. But, Katie, I have, to, I have to stress, it was gradual. Gradually they would come, knock on the door of an apartment. Is Herr Miller here? Well, he's sleeping. Get him out here. And Miller would stumble out, and he was arrested. And the wife would say, what? What has he done? What? They took him away. Oh we didn't know where. Nobody knew where. My mother knew this because it was happening in our neighborhood, not everywhere. One or two. And then, then people would rationalize, oh, well, yeah, you know, this Miller, he always was kind of a weird guy. He was a troublemaker. And then it went more and more. And so my mother realized something had to happen. The government wasn't going to change. We had to change. Mm-hmm. And this was another thing that she was so smart, street smart. So things around you are not changing. <laughs> you change. You get out if you can. So she made two plans, one for my father and one for me and my sisters. So your mother made the plans. Oh, absolutely. So my father was, as I said, a designer. And my mother heard that there was going to be a trade show in Cuba. I think she read it in a trade paper. So she went to my father and she said, you need to go to Cuba. Go to this trade show. Go to the Nazi. Tell them you're just going for a couple of weeks to show your designs. And you get there and you don't come back. 
Oh, really? I don't come back. I leave you here, he says, with three children. The baby is three years old. That's me. She said, no, you don't come back. You go to America. Mm. How do I get to America? Don't We'll find a way to get to America. First, you get out of here, and you go to Cuba, and I'm going to be okay. So there was only two weeks' time. He did go to the authorities. He showed them his credentials. He probably sketched a coat for them because he'd always had a sketch pad in his pocket. And they said, fine, you're coming back. Of course, we know you have your business here. You have your family. Go for two weeks. Well, he was gone. He got to America through a friend of a friend who knew someone that would sign the paper. And meantime, we're in Berlin, and my mother plans for us to leave, how to go. I think it was divine providence that I got very sick. I got a working call. So my mother took me with her when she went to the authorities. And why do you want to leave Germany? Well, this little girl here, she's very sick. Uh, she has whooping cough. I can imagine the Nazi backing away <laughs> when he heard that. I mean, it's Contagious. Like quite, you know? mm-hmm. So uh, she said, I need to take her to Switzerland, to the mountains, where the doctor said she has a chance of recovery. So he says, well, it says here you're taking three children. What about the two? You have two older girls. Why can't they stay with family? Oh, no, no, no. Nobody here to take them. I have to take them with me. And what year was this? This was 1938. Mm -hmm. So the thick of it. really. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Bordering on 39. Mm. Oh, my goodness. You know, I'm not positive. I think it was late 38. So he stamped the visa. On it, of course, already was the swastika. Oh, good. That also appears on my birth certificate. And it said, Yuda, Jew, should anyone ask. And he said, all right, I'm giving you a visa for one week. And you can take 10 marks per person and only hand luggage. Fine. We went home. My mother immediately went to my grandmother, grandmother Lucy's house, told her the plans and begged her to come with us. Grandmother refused, stoutly refused, over and over again. She was 75 years old. What do they want with an old woman? So, of course, my mother was heartbroken. Fast forward in 1942, after we were in America, we got a note from the, I don't know who it was, Red Cross Underground. My grandmother had been deported to Auschwitz. It was a tragedy that my mother never really got over. I don't think any of us did. Oh, no. So the second plan worked. We left, got onto a taxi, got to the train station. And as it says in the book, I can imagine how my mother collapsed, told us to sit down and be quiet. Three of us looking out the window. And suddenly there was an unscheduled stop before we got to the border. Everyone is horribly alarmed. Why don't we stop and grumbling? We're supposed to get to Zurich to have an appointment. Well, the door was flung open and a Nazi came in and screamed, Jews out. Nobody moved. He yelled again. Then he started going through people's papers, of course. And my mother got up and pulled us up and said, come on, we have to go out. Oh, my goodness. She told me later, and this was re- this also stung 
a lot for her. Everybody was staring at us, walking out of that train. And we were taken to a hut. And I remember it was cold. And my mother and my sisters were strip searched. And I was just patted down all over. And then we were released. These people have nothing, the woman said. And we got back on the train. And we arrived in Zurich. I believe it was dark. When you're fleeing, it seems always to be dark. It seems always to be cold. You're always hungry. And that's the pattern, not just for us. You look around the world, and I see these people fleeing. I see the images on television. Oh, my God. I I just want to reach in there and say, come on. I know how it is. I know how you feel. How did your mother explain to you and your sisters why you were leaving Germany? I think it was very simple. We're in danger. We're Jews. So she put it to you straight. Oh, I think I always knew. Mm-hmm. I always knew everything because when the people were talking, those those people who later sang, uh, we knew about the concentration camps. We knew had been arrested. We knew about already what what word was coming, death camps. Yeah, I always knew. As mm-hmm. long as I can, as long as I can recall, I knew Hitler was a horrible person. I knew there was danger. They let you go, these authorities who had strip-searched your sisters and your mother and patted you down, let you continue on the train. You got to Zurich. Did she know anyone in Zurich? No. This is the amazing thing, and the older I get, the more I acknowledge my mother's courage. No, no friends, no family. Swiss German is even quite different from Hochdeutsch. My mother had thought she could work as a baby nurse, maybe in a hospital, but not being a citizen, she was not allowed to work anywhere. My sisters were not allowed to go to school. So basically, she had rented one room. I don't know how she managed to pay the rent. Maybe the landlady took pity and allowed us to stay in this room. And after a short, I don't know when, my mother had a nervous breakdown, and we were sent away. My mother was in the hospital. My two sisters were sent to families who took in foster children, benevolent, wonderful people. And I was sent to a camp in the mountains. I don't know whether I still had whooping cough, God forbid. <laughs> you, you said she had a nervous breakdown. You kind of mentioned it just in passing. What, what happened? Well, my mother, uh, being in, in Zurich with us, the, the trauma, being without her husband all this while, the, the trauma of leaving her family, her mother, of being in what I call a stranger in a strange land, but not eating because the money ran out. And she was basically living, I think, on tea and sugar, maybe toast if she could find it, afford it. I don't know. But she certainly was not a healthy person physically or mentally at this point. Do you have any memory of that? I remember the camp, and I remember going to the house of one of the families that took my sisters in the Bible family who are in the book, how Mm -hmm. good they were to all of us. And I remember being brought out of the camp 
and hurried along. We had to have our picture taken for our visa. My father finally earned enough money as a peddler in New York to send us tickets to come to America. By then, we had been already apart for a year. I was only four when we got on that ship. Once we got to America, my idea and my hope was to become thoroughly American. Mm-hmm. And I did. I didn't want to speak German. When I started dating, they were all almost all American boys. My mother brought a couple of boys from their club. But one in particular, she wanted me to go out with, and I wanted nothing to do with So you first went, your family was first in New York, right? Yeah. But then after the United States entered the war, after Pearl Harbor, you went to California? Oh, my mother was very worried because we were not yet citizens. We had applied for citizenship immediately. And immediately, my parents started taking the Americanization course, learning a language. And my mother heard that we, who were not yet citizens and of German origin, were classified as enemy aliens. Now, my mother was very frightened that we might even be deported. Why? They, the idea was that just as some of the Japanese were suspect uh, on the West Coast, maybe being spies for Japan, that some of the Germans could be spies for Germany. And don't forget, the big uh, threat was the U-boats, the submarines. They needed to have signals. What if someone uh, somewhere gave a signal? To one of these U-boats, I don't know, uh, conspiracy. (laughs) So my mother decided we had to leave New York and come out west. And we were told how lovely it is in California. The sun shines. There's grass growing everywhere. (laughs) So we did go to California. And I absolutely loved it. So she uh, did she love Los Angeles, too? Oh, I think so. My mother just, yes, and in her late years, all she wanted to do was be in her little apartment in the Fairfax district. She walked every day. Uh, She had the idea that she needed to walk so that her blood would circulate. My oldest sister became a nurse and laughed at her and said, of course your blood circulates. You don't have to walk. So did you always get the the impression that she was the strong one? It sounds like she was the decisive one of your two parents. Oh, yes. And when she said something, she meant it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was also very proper. Yes. And she brought you up with impeccable etiquette. Absolutely, which served me very, very well. My husband ended up working for a large corporation, And we had many social opportunities. One, the company, I don't know, we all went to Washington, D.C., and we met with the congressional delegation, and we were entertained and had many things like that. And your mother, as you were growing up, she didn't want you to lose your German, I take it. No, which was a good thing. She says you can hate people who are evil. You should, but you don't hate the language. Mm -hmm. I could not really go back to Germany ever for 
pleasure. There's no pleasure in it for me. Mm-hmm. What do you think she would say about the situation our nation is in today? Speaking of, um, a, a... oh, Katie, I thank God that she did not have to witness this. So many of my friends not just immigrants, not just refugees, but so many are so appalled and, yes, Mm -hmm. fearful. Not Mm -hmm. even so much fearful of the instigator, but of the followers. It's the followers who give permission for these horrible things to happen, either by overt following or by their silence. Silence is consent. Mm -hmm. And your mother knew that. Oh, my mother knew that, and we all knew it. And, uh, you know, every person who has studied anything, and I've done a lot of study about um, dictatorships, dictators rising up, how they do it, it's always the same. Was your mother proud of you? (laughs) She was so proud, bless her. Well, you know, she was so positive. When the book came out, she got all these copies, and the next thing she would tell this friend was, my daughter is a genius. She wrote a book about me. Would you like to see it? So if you had mm, maybe just 10 minutes with her today, what, what would you like to talk about with her? I would just tell her how much I loved her and what a great influence she was in my life, how she made me brave, how she made me able to try new things, go new places. Um, Before we end, is you mentioned at the very beginning, taking care of her and giving back to her the way she gave to you when you were a little girl. When I moved to Los Angeles... I'll tell you how good she was. I missed my community and my friends in Northern California. We lived in a lovely little town, Moraga. Uh, I guess I have a city business and intellect, but my heart is in a small town. And so when we moved to uh, L.A., we decided we would certainly see each other every week, and we did. Uh, We'd go out, as I said to lunch, a little shopping. And one day she stopped in front of the restaurant and she was on a step above me. We were going to my car and she stopped and she said, Sonia, I want you to know. Uh, She said, when I'm not here anymore, I want you to know you're my best child, the way you've taken care of me. Well, I wanted to ask you, was it hard to see her start to decline like that and and truly decline um, when she had been such a source of strength when you were little? Well, it was, but I adapted unknowingly, probably, or without making a plan. I adapted to what she could understand and could do. It got to the point, we always went out to lunch, and she always ordered the same thing. 
my sister used to laugh and say, not a green thing has passed her lips in 20 years. <laughs> well, I, now I did read in the, in the notes here that she was not a great cook. Oh, she was a terrible cook. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would she, she always cooked the same thing, right? Or she didn't well, want to... She was just a terrible cook. She used, I knew of no spices except for salt and sugar. She she was just a terrible cook. My mother was not into food except for schlaxana, whipped cream. Oh, nice, whipped cream. Coffee mm -hmm. and whipped cream and cake she loved. Nice. And then in the later, when I started taking her every Wednesday, we'd go to lunch. Uh, she always, for dessert, she had chocolate mousse with whipped cream, of course. Of course. <laughs> nice. Well, you know, on that note, I would like to tell you I've so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Katie. It's really been an honor and a pleasure. You know, there's there's nothing more wonderful and cathartic than to bring my mother back into the room with these memories and to share them. And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Our theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist-in-residence. Our associate producer is Sophie McNulty. And Alice Hudson is the show's producer. Please visit us at ourmothersourselves.com and contribute the one word that best describes your mother to the site's mother word cloud. That's ourmothersourselves.com. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredex Studios in San Francisco, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. Stay safe, everyone. You know just what to do.